Well, I invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Chapter 14 of Paul's first recorded and preserved epistle to the Corinthians. Of course, we know that there was a lost epistle, and that doesn't shake our trust in the preservation of Scripture at all, does it? God has included what He wants for us to have in His Bible. And for those unaware, let me just remind our visitors that we are in a verse-by-verse expositional study of 1 Corinthians and have been for some time. And this morning we come to verse 13 of chapter 14. I believe this is the 65th part of this expositional study in 1 Corinthians And we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 19 of 1 Corinthians. So, read with me as I read aloud 1 Corinthians 14, beginning at verse 13. These are the words of God. Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. Else when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say amen at thy giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest? For thou verily givest thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God, I speak with tongues more than ye all. Yet in the church, I had rather speak five words with my understanding, that by my voice I might teach others also than ten thousand words in an unknown tongue. I'm going to preach the help of God a sermon this morning entitled, Can You Say Amen? Can You Say Amen? In the modern landscape of evangelicalism, many are under the sad impression that they are forced to choose between two deficient options when it comes to the flavor of Christian worship. They can either worship in an environment that is reverent and somber, where all the emphasis is placed on intellectual truth, but where the place of emotions in worship is either implicitly denied or explicitly rejected. Such worship services may be viewed as lofty or traditional, but they are oftentimes cold and callous. Well, the other supposed option is an environment of worship in which truth takes a back seat to an emotional experience. In this context, All the emphasis is placed on feeling and excitement with little care for the content of what is being said and done in the worship of God. Certainly, uh, with those two options, one of them, I don't think I have to tell you which one, is far more prevalent in our day than the other. Hint, it's the last one, okay? (laughs) And these worship services, they may be entertaining to the flesh, but they lack a lot to be desired to those who care about the truth of God's word and conducting themselves in accordance with that truth. Well, in this section of 1 Corinthians 14, brothers and sisters, Paul would have us to know that these are most emphatically not the only two options presented to us in Christian worship. Paul has now spent the better part of three chapters discussing the role of spiritual gifts in the church. And up until now, much of his instruction has been pointed at how these gifts are to be properly exercised. But in our text today, Paul will also address the appropriate response that we are to have in the church to the proper exercise of spiritual gifts. So here is what Paul is teaching us. When spiritual gifts are properly used in the church and when God's people properly respond to the use of those gifts, the result 
is a service of corporate worship that magnifies the truth of God and also engages the heartfelt emotions of God's people. This is a worship that teaches and transforms, that edifies and excites, that instructs and enthralls. To put it simply, when we consider the relationship between intellectual truth and emotional effect, biblical worship is a both and, not an either or. As Paul is teaching on spiritual gifts, he is interested in the Corinthians following what he calls in chapter 12 and verse 31, a more excellent way. Remember he says, but I show unto you a more excellent way. That more excellent way, as we know, is the way of love, as we saw it in chapter 13. But the way of love is the way of edification. And the way of edification is the way of understanding. Do you see how Paul has masterfully built this argument over the course of these three chapters? All we do in the worship of God, especially the use of our spiritual gifts, must be guided by love. And if we are guided by love, then we will have a desire to edify one another, to build up one another, to bless one another. We don't just come to church to be blessed. We come to church to be a blessing. Mm -hmm. And in order to edify one another, we must worship with understanding and intelligibility. That's the argument that the apostle has been developing over the course of these last three chapters. So let us dive into this text, beginning at verse 13, with these preliminary thoughts in mind. And let us focus, though, not only on the one who is exercising his or her spiritual gift, but also specifically on the response of the congregation to the spiritual gifts of others in the church. And I want you to ask the question as we look at these verses, can you say amen? So notice three things with me. The first is this. I want you to see the requirement of understanding the requirement of understanding. Notice Paul begins in verse 13. He says, Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. Oh, before we consider what this specific verse is teaching, let me ask you a more introductory question about this whole section of 1 Corinthians, and that is this. Why is this text, specifically this section of this epistle, so difficult to interpret? This is difficult to interpret. The whole section, chapter 12, the list of gifts, chapter 13 with the description of love is a little bit easier for us, but then chapter 14, all these directives for the church. Well, the reason why it's difficult for us to interpret and the reason why we must approach this section with with caution and even a, a degree of healthy, sanctified uncertainty is because the specific situation in view is not one that arises in our churches today. What is the specific situation in view? Well, the specific situation in view is the unbridled abuse of the gift of tongues. And I, for one, thank God that we don't deal with that specific problem in our churches today. The gift of tongues does not operate in the church today as it did in Paul's. So we must come to this text realizing that it addresses a time with specific circumstances where the church were different than they are today. And as we seek to interpret and apply these verses in our present context, we must pay special attention, not not just to the, the particular directives, but to the general principles of the passage. Well, the general principle of verse 13, wherefore... Uh, he, he that speaks in tongues, let him pray that he may interpret. The general principle of verse 13 is that spiritual gifts are only profitable when they are understandable. Mm-hmm. And that's a principle that applies not just to the gift of tongues, but to every spiritual gift and really everything we do in church. Mm-hmm. A word in an unknown tongue may be exciting and entertaining, but it is only beneficial when it is accompanied 
with an interpretation in the common language of the people. Well, this does, however, raise an important question for us. Maybe you've already thought of this question if you're really keen on following Paul's uh, teachings here in these chapters. In verse 13, Paul instructs the one with the gift of tongues to also pray for the ability to interpret what he says. He says this to the same person. He that speaks in tongues, let him pray that he may interpret, not just that someone else might have the gift of interpretation. However, we have before proven that when someone spoke in an unknown tongue, they did possess some understanding of what they were saying. Look at verse 4 of chapter 14. We looked at that last week. Notice that Paul says that when someone speaks in an unknown tongue, they edify themselves. Well, if they have no understanding whatsoever of what they've said, how can they edify themselves? So they they must have some sort of understanding of what they're saying. So here's the question then. If the tongue speaker had some understanding of what he was saying, of what his prophecy was, why did Paul tell him to pray for the gift of interpretation? It's a good question, right? I mean, that's the kind of question that, the, that a, a, a studied charismatic is going to throw in your face when you <laughs> try to lay out the biblical teaching of tongues. Well, the answer to that question is this, I believe. There is a difference in understanding the natural meaning of words and having an infallible interpretation of what those words mean in the Spirit. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you this way. Think of John, the Apostle John, and how he received the revelation of Jesus Christ on the island of Patmos. How did he receive that revelation? Well, he received that revelation through dreams and visions. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and uh, Jesus revealed to him visions that he had no idea how to make sense of them, right? And so Jesus gives him all these prophetic visions, but Jesus doesn't say to John, okay, John, now you use the best words that you can come up with to explain what you've seen. No. He not only gives him visions, but he also gives him infallible words to interpret those visions. And that's what we have in the book of Revelation. Not only do we have the visions, but we have the infallible words to convey those visions to us. I believe that this is Uh, the same principle being applied in 1 Corinthians 14. Not only must you have the gift of tongues, the gift of tongues uh, isn't enough to merely know the meaning of those words in our common language. That's not enough for us. We must have an infallible spiritual interpretation of those words. You can make a similar application, though you need to be careful, but you can make a similar application with preaching. There's a difference in just me getting up here and uh, reading a text of Scripture to you and then seeking to make spiritual application. Now, I say you need to be careful because I don't want anybody to get the idea that what's going on in the pulpit is an infallible interpretation of Scripture. But nevertheless, you see the difference between just a mere understanding. You can know the letter of what these words mean and not know the spiritual interpretation of these words. But here's the point, brothers and sisters. We are not edified by a pretty good guess of what God is saying to us. We are edified by a sure apprehension of God's truth as the Holy Spirit illuminates our minds to perceive what thus saith the Lord. So Paul's instructions are quite simple then. If you don't have an infallible spiritual interpretation to accompany your prophecy... Don't speak in tongues. Mm -hmm. This is an application and an amplification of verse 12. We must only do those things in the corporate worship of God that lead to edification. This is the requirement of understanding. He goes on, he says, in verse 14, he says, For if I, he uses himself as an example, For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. Well, let me tell you what this verse is not saying. This verse is not saying that the gift of tongues is a secret prayer language that we use to speak to God in private, as it's often taught, right? Mm -hmm. That flies in the face of the context of this passage, doesn't it? What is the context of this passage? 
It's all about what we do publicly in the corporate worship of God, not what we do in private. So when he says that his understanding is unfruitful, and he talks about praying in the Spirit, he means that if he prays publicly in the assembly, he leads the congregation in prayer, and he does so in an unknown tongue that is not intelligible to the congregation, his understanding won't produce any fruit. This verse also imparts to us an important lesson about prayer in the church that we, we need to keep in mind as we work our way through this text. We'll see a more direct application in a minute, but log this away. The primary objective of public prayer in worship is not the edification of the one praying alone, but it is the edification of the whole body as the one praying leads the whole church in prayer. That's why we're commanded to pray publicly in uh, corporate worship. That's why one of the, the responsibilities of a gospel minister, in addition to ministering the, the word, ministering the sacrament, is to lead his congregation in prayer. And so just remember that. Remember the place of, of corporate prayer, as we, especially as we continue on, but I, I want to first point out to you Paul's conclusion here in verse 15 of this responsibility uh, or, or this requirement of understanding. Notice he says in verse 15, what is it then? So what's the point? He says, I will pray with the Spirit, and that doesn't mean I'm going to ejaculate gibberish and call it prayer. That means I'm going to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit I'm going to pray true prayers that are not worked up in my flesh. You know, all true prayer is a product of the Holy Spirit. You, you have never once truly prayed in your flesh. Because prayer is a Trinitarian conversation whereby you enter into this communication with the Father and the Son through the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells you. So Paul says, I'm going to pray in the Spirit. I'm going to pray in the Spirit. But, he says, and there's not a contradiction here, he says, I will pray with the understanding also. And then he says, I will sing with the Spirit. And again, same, same meaning there. Is that as he's singing the praises and the worship of God, he, he's doing so through the help of the Holy Spirit. But I will sing with the understanding also. So the conclusion is that as we exercise our spiritual gifts, whether in praying, whether in singing, or whether in preaching, or in any other way, we must do so in a way that is understandable. This text is a call to engage our minds in the worship of God. When you come to church, the very best of your mental faculties must be employed in the worship of God. Church is not the, the place you come to to sit like a vegetable for an hour, and mindlessly go through the motions. You must be engaged. You must be thinking. You must be meditating upon what you're doing in order to truly worship your God in a way of which He is worthy. And this places a responsibility on the leader in worship to lead with understanding, but it also places a responsibility on the rest of the congregation to seek to understand. See, if... If something is going on in worship and you, you don't understand, uh, you're confused, you're, you're, you're lost, well, it could be my fault or it could be your fault, but there's a disconnect somewhere, right? <laughs> and you can't control, uh, you can't control if you have a, a pastor that's uh, just up, up there making no sense. But what you can control is, am I trying to, to understand? And I can't control... If I have someone that I'm preaching to that just has no desire whatsoever to understand. But what I can do is seek to do all that I do with the best understanding in mind. So when a brother leads us in prayer, we are not to be passive spectators. Corporate prayer is not a time to think about what we're going to have for dinner when we get home. Corporate prayer is not a time to think about who won the ball game yesterday. It was Georgia, by the way. 
And I'll tell you that so when we pray, you're not tempted to think about it. Now you know. We are to listen intently and to enter into that prayer. As the brother prays aloud, we pray with him in our hearts. We're praying together. I know that this can be a struggle. Believe me, I know. Especially after a long day of work and then you come to church on Wednesday evening for our prayer meeting and you're exhausted and then you enter into a time of corporate prayer. I I know the struggle is real. It takes work for us to stay mentally engaged during times of corporate prayer, but it is a work that we must do in order to reap the benefits of prayer in the church. The same applies for congregational singing. Be attentive in congregational singing. Get the hymnal out. Get the psalter out. Look at the words that we're we're singing. By the way, the words are the most important part of our worship when we sing. It's not the tune. This, This is just a circumstance that helps us to be able to sing. Think about the words. Meditate upon the truth of what you're singing. If we sing a song that's unfamiliar to you, and something in it ministered to your heart, jot down the number of the hymn in your notes. Go home. Take a hymnal with you. You, you, By all means, take a hymnal with you. Go home. Meditate upon what we've just sung in corporate worship. And There's another application for us here as well in this verse, and that is that everything we do in the church must have content. What I mean by that is, is every prayer we pray, every song we sing, every sermon we preach must be immersed in the truth of the Word of God. We don't want to waste our time and dishonor our God by coming to church to go through trivial ditties. Our worship will be edifying in as much as it is biblical. Right? So let's not be afraid of singing these these deeply theological hymns. And of course, we know that there's content in the Psalms. You can never go wrong singing the Psalter. (laughs) As we pray, let us bathe our prayers in Scripture, in the promises of God, in the truth of the Word of God. Let us pray for one another, for things that really matter in the Christian life. Verses 13 through 15 teach us the requirement of understanding in worship. Now as we move on to verses 16 and 17, we want to look at the proper response of God's people in worship. Okay, so supposing that we have spiritual gifts being used, and they're being used with understanding, and our worship is filled with content, it's all centered around God's truth, How should we respond? That's the question that Paul's going to answer for us in verses 16 and 17. Notice what Paul says, verse verse 16. He says, Else, when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say amen at thy giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest? Now the the unlearned uh, is simply... Just someone who is an outsider. They are visiting the church, but they're visiting the church from the perspective of someone who is unfamiliar with what usually takes place in Christian worship. They may be an unbeliever. They may be uh, a a new convert. They may be someone who who is just untaught in, in biblical worship, right? Not necessarily an unbeliever, though that's probably the the primary individual Paul would have in mind here in 1 Corinthians 14. And Paul says, if you're speaking in an unknown tongue, if everybody in the church is just using this unbridled, unrestrained uh, gift of tongues, how will that person, that outsider who happens to visit, how will he be able to say amen to what he hears because he won't understand? Men cannot give assent to what they don't understand. At least they shouldn't. No one can give a proper amen to something that makes absolutely no sense. (laughs) I have to share this quote from 
Charles Hodge in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. And uh, I, I almost couldn't believe he said this because I thought, you've been to some of the same worship services I've been to. Hodge says, we cannot say amen to such words any more than we can to a flute. That's funny to me for a specific reason. Because I remember very distinctly being in a worship service. And um, it was a worship service that was introduced and proceeded with about 40 minutes of special music. You know, where someone gets up and performs for the church. And we sit there and we listen like we're at a concert. And one of the ones doing a special uh, did a flute special. An instrumental flute special. I'm sure that she was playing hymns. But... I could not make out what she was playing. And I remember she went on for about seven minutes. It was a very long flute special. And after she was done, all the men, oh, amen, sister, amen. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, how can I say amen at your giving of thanks when I don't understand what you just played? You could have been doing ACDC on the piccolo flute for all I know. I'm not going to amen that. And so I'm not, I'm not going to chase the rabbit of special music and instrumental whatever. The purpose is we need to know what's being done. We need to have understanding if we're going to say amen in corporate worship. Amen. But what I want to focus in on is the very pristinely clear implication of this verse. What is the implication of verse 16? It is this, that the audible saying of the amen in corporate worship is the expected, appropriate, biblical, and yes, even commanded response of God's people to the truth of the worship of God. In the Jewish synagogue, it was very customary for the people to respond by saying amen to the prayers, to the proclamation of the word. And it's evident here that Paul approves of this practice as continuing in the New Testament church because, notice, he assumes that if the unlearned did understand, he would say amen. It's kind of like amen is just an expected thing for you to say in church. And so if you can't understand, you can't do it. Now, In our confessionally reformed Baptist churches where such a high premium is placed on the regulative principle of worship, where we write books and we preach sermons on the biblical parts of worship, where we meticulously ensure that we include in our worship all the things that God institutes in His Word and only the things God institutes in His Word, is it not true, can it not be argued that this saying of the amen is one of our deficiencies. When it comes to the saying of the amen, we often fail to implement this biblical teaching in our worship. For a number of years, I had the privilege, and it was a privilege, to be a member of Heritage Baptist Church in Fayetteville, Georgia. It was founded by Steve Martin in 1989. Hank Rast is one of the elders there now. And uh, they had a black minister named Lewis Lampley who would occasionally, he wasn't an elder of the church, he was a retired minister, and he would occasionally preach there. And that this church would have anywhere from 70 to 100 people in worship on Sunday mornings. And I was pretty much the only person that would ever say an amen, in, especially during the preaching. And I remember one Sunday when Brother Lewis Lampley taught Sunday school, And he taught a lesson on the theology of the amen. And he went to Deuteronomy, where God pronounced curses upon his people. And all the people responded with amen. And I remember, uh, I guess he could kind of see that some folks were just confused as to what he was trying to convey. And I'll never forget, Brother Lewis Lampley said, I'm teaching this lesson so y'all know what Brother Kenny be saying all the time on Sunday mornings. But I think our brother was right. And not just because I was the one who said the amen. I was the token amener. All throughout the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, when God's people assemble together for corporate worship, we see the presence of the verbal 
Amen. Now we seek at this church, one of the ways we seek to remedy this deficiency is by including times in our corporate worship where we all join in saying the amen together. We do that after the reading of Scripture. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks be to God. We do this uh, most recently. We've started doing it very regularly after the singing of hymns and psalms. We sing the amen together. You're encouraged to pronounce the amen when the benediction is given, right? But I believe that Scripture gives us the precedent of not limiting our amens to only those times when we all say them together. The, the Bible encourages a hearty and spontaneous amen in corporate worship when it is said appropriately, responsibly, and reverently. When you say amen, what are you saying? Well, you're making a statement of agreement to the proclamation of the truth. That's what you're doing. Verily, verily, it's the same word. You are saying, that is true, and I believe it, and I like it. <laughs> I love it. Uh, not only is it the truth, not only do I believe it, but I thank God for it. I worship God because of this truth. What I want you to understand is that biblical worship is dialogical. What does that mean? That means worship is a conversation. And it's not a one-sided conversation. Worship is a conversation in which God speaks to us. Isn't that a, a blessed thought? That every Sunday morning, when we meet together to worship God, He speaks to us in a special way that He doesn't speak to us any other time. He speaks to us through His Word. As it's preached, as it's proclaimed, as it's read, He speaks to us. And we speak back to him through our prayers, through our singing, and you guessed it, through our amens. Therefore, it is the duty of God's people to respond with vocal amens to the expression of praise, the proclamation of the word, and the declaration of the truth. The saying of the amen unites the congregation in the worship of God. Remember what Paul told us about praying and singing in verse 15. Remember, I told you that, that prayer is not just for the benefit of the one praying. When someone is called on to pray or when someone leads the church in prayer, that's not their time to, to be in the spotlight and to, to pray this big theological prayer so everybody could know that they were reading John Owen throughout the week. No, it's, it's their time to have the privilege of actually ministering and serving the rest of the church by leading them in prayer. And so when, when I lead in the pastoral prayer, when Jackson or when Alan, when they lead in the congregational prayer, and when we all respond with amen at the end, we enter into that spirit of prayer as if we prayed it ourselves. Their prayer becomes our prayer. And when we conclude the singing of the psalm or the singing of a hymn with an amen, we agree together that what we just sang is an expression of the truth we believe. And when you amen the preaching of the word, you enter into the spirit of what is being preached as if you were preaching it yourself. You own it. When you amen the preaching, you're not amening me or whoever happens to be in the pulpit. You're amening God as he speaks through the preacher. And when an outsider comes in and hears those amens, he is struck with the communal nature of Christian worship. He is made keenly aware of the reality that when the word of God is being preached, it's not just the pastor up there doing his own thing. This is something that involves the whole congregation. Think about what, what puts yourself through the eyes of a, of a Canaanite. And you're watching Moses stand up before the people of God and pronounce the word of God. And you see all the Israelites shout back to Moses, Amen. You realize this isn't just some crazy guy Preaching to people. No, this is a, a, a corporate body. They're all united. They're together. 
in this reality. That's the picture of what it's supposed to look like in the New Testament church. We are a people united as one body in spirit and truth when we come together to worship God because the amen is an expression of our unity by one church, as one church, bound together by one truth. I love the way Sam Waldron, Dr. Waldron, puts this in his book, How Then Should We Worship? Great book on on worship, by the way, if you don't have it. He says this, quote, True public worship should manifest sacred involvement. No bystanders are allowed in public worship. Worship is not a spectator sport. You are not to watch. You are here to worship, and that involves saying the amen. Well, this got me to thinking about why the saying of the amen is so often neglected. Why is it that we often don't say the amen? So let me give you a few common reasons. Number one, simply because of a lack of teaching or a lack of example. If you're in a church where the amen is never said and where there is never any teaching on the saying of the amen, I would care to venture that for some of you, this is the first time you've ever really heard any preaching or teaching on saying amen in church, right? Well, then it's very unlikely that the practice will ever be incorporated into the worship of the church because let's face it, no one wants to be the first, right? If you're in a church, especially a larger church, um, you're not going to be, you don't want to be that one guy that gets a Sunday school lesson taught about you because you say amen all the time. So it could just be a, a lack of teaching or a lack of example. Secondly, it could be because of a faulty belief that the saying of the amen is disorderly or irreverent. It is regrettably true that there are some churches who are of this opinion. Uh, They seem to think that their dead silence in corporate worship is a mark of their maturity and reverence. It's also true that the amen is wildly abused in in some churches, right? I I mean, I've been, and I'm sure some of you have too, in worship services, where the congregation so frequently and so loudly shouts their amens that it really becomes meaningless. Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Romans. Amen! What are you talking about? The shoutings of those amens are also accompanied with many other noises and expressions from the congregation that hinder, they do hinder, and they do distract from the purity of God's worship. So I'll grant you that, that The saying of the amen has been abused, and I think that's for our kind of churches. I think that's one of the reasons why we often neglect it is because we're afraid we don't want to come across like that, right? But as it is the case with many practices in the church that are abused in some circles, the fact that some churches abuse the saying of the amen should not cause us to neglect it altogether. I, I... I must confess that there are times in which I feel an external compulsion to be more somber or to be more serious as we worship God together as a church simply because I've been in environments where it was so serious and it was so quiet and it was so what they would call reverential that I I don't ever want to come across as as casual in the worship of God. But then I I have to remind myself that uh, what you see, especially a production at a major conference or a production at a larger church is not necessarily the standard by which you must impose upon your own congregation. And conversely, the fact that some churches are characterized by hooping and hollering and yelling and running does not mean that we have to sit here as dead, dry tree stumps in order to worship God respectfully. You can say amen and worship God respectfully. You can crack a smile in the worship of God and not be guilty of a sin unto death. Is it not compelling that Paul mentions the saying of the amen in the very same chapter in which he stresses the need for order and understanding in worship? We're going to get there at the end of this chapter, but he has some very strong things to say about doing everything decently and in order. And in that same chapter, he approves of the saying of the Amen. That tells me that the saying of the Amen must be in accordance with worship that is decent and orderly. 
right? Well, thirdly, another reason why the amen is often neglected is because of pride. Because of pride. You don't want to say amen in church because you're more worried about what someone else in the congregation will think of you than you are about filling your biblical duty as an active participant in the worship of God. If you pronounce an appropriate amen in the worship and someone else in the congregation takes issue with that, let me say this politely but straightforwardly, that's their problem and they need to get over themselves. And and maybe, just maybe, as they see you biblically amening and, and participating in the worship of God, they might learn from your example. This is the saying of the amen, by the way, is one of the the, the things in which the congregation has a much better opportunity to model an example to others than the preacher does. Although I've known some guys that probably would amen their own preaching. It's, it's certainly not advised. <laughs> so it could be because of pride. Don't, don't worry about what someone else is going to think uh, if you amen the worship of God. You're not amening them. You're amening God. Well, fourthly, It could be, it could be that you don't say amen in corporate worship because you do not have the Holy Spirit within you agreeing to the truth of the Word of God. If you attend the worship of Jesus Christ on a regular basis in a church where the truth is regularly proclaimed And there has never been a time when the Spirit of God has bore witness with your spirit and you are compelled to express your assent to the truth of God's Word with a hearty amen, then you may very well not be a Christian. Now, I am not saying that you're not saved unless you say amen in church. But I am saying that if you can participate in the prayers and the singing and the preaching of God's people and not ever be moved at all in your heart, something's wrong. There's some Sundays where you'll come to church and you've prepared your heart and you, you came in and you sang and you prayed and you enjoyed the sermon, it was good, but you didn't feel like some mountain had been moved in your soul. That's normal, that's okay. Not, not every worship service will be this dramatic, high emotional experience. But if you can never think of a time or you never experience a time in your Christian worship in which God tugs at the heartstrings of your soul, not with excitement, not with entertainment, but with truth, with truth, then there's something wrong, brother. There's something wrong, sister. So let me encourage you, saint of God, If you want to worship God, if you want to testify to the truth of God's worship, and if you want to unite with your brothers and sisters in the church as we worship our Lord Jesus Christ together, then beloved, say amen. And if you're one who rarely says amen for any of the reasons I just mentioned, then try saying the amen more often and more passionately when you come to worship God. You might just be surprised that as you really give yourself over and you enter into the worship of God and you, you, you get out of your own mind and your own head and you just allow your soul to delight in the things of God and naturally it just wells up within you and you say amen in the worship of God that you, you feel as, as if the Spirit is ministering to you as you respond in worship. Give it a try. I promise it'll be good for you. And if you're from Tennessee... Or North Carolina, you can even try putting an H on it occasionally. If you don't understand that, ask one of the brothers from North Carolina to explain that to you after the service. Jackson will be happy to do it. Put an H on it, right? Amen. There's never been a time that I can think of in this church where there's ever been a concern that the amen is being said too frequently or too loudly. That's not our problem. If that was our problem, we'd address that. And I don't think our problem is that we never say the amen in corporate worship. It's the great thing about expository preaching. You can't accuse me of uh, trying to get on a hobby horse this morning. I'm just coming to where we're at in the text. If you feel moved in your spirit, 
if you are stirred in God's worship, then you respond to God with a hearty amen. Well, lastly, I want you to see in verses 18 through 19, I want you to see the resolution of Christian worship. We've seen the requirement of understanding, the response of the amen, and I want you to see the resolution of Christian worship. Notice in verse 18, Paul says this uh, controversial phrase, I thank my God, I speak with tongues more than ye all. What a lot of people like to do with 1 Corinthians 14 is cherry pick it to prove a point that the apostle has no intention of proving. And they'll say, see here, Paul said that he speaks in tongues more than any of us, so we ought to be speaking in tongues more. Well, it's important for us to know why Paul says what he says here. His intention in this verse is is this. It's as if Paul is saying, listen, guys, I am not dismissing tongues altogether. I am not discrediting the gift of tongues. I'm not telling you Corinthians, don't speak in tongues. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that your use of this gift must be consistent with the goal of Christian worship and the reason why God gave the spiritual gifts. Gordon Fee, who, by the way, was a Pentecostal, wrote an excellent commentary on 1 Corinthians. Gordon Fee argues that what Paul does here is affirm in the strongest language possible that this favorite gift of the Corinthians was a valid gift, but he does so in order to reorder their thinking about what should actually happen in the church. He says, I speak in tongues more than all of you. I've got no problem with the gift of tongues. I do it all the time. I I speak in tongues more than all of you. But when I speak in tongues, I do it for the right reason and in the right way. And so he says in verse 19, Yet in the church, I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. To speak with his understanding was to speak in an intelligible language so as to convey instruction. In other words, when Paul came to Corinth, he wanted to be able to get an honest amen. And in order to do that, he couldn't go there speaking in an unknown tongue. He had to speak with understanding. One of the, there are many, but one of the really sad realities of churches that are just obsessed with what they think is the gift of tongues is that it shifts the focus of Christian worship away from the God that ought to be worshipped and onto the performer who is exercising the gift. And do you know what happens when that happens? No one is edified. How many people I believe, that I believe are genuinely converted and have a love for the Lord, but they have been on the milk of, of Christianity. They've, 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 they've not grown hardly at all in the things of God since God saved them because they're in a church where all the focus is on two or three men or women that perform. It's not on God and the truth of God and the truth of Jesus Christ and the word of God. It's a talent show. That's a sad reality. Brian Borgman says, spiritual maturity is not self-absorbed. Spiritual maturity is seen in its care for others. Someone who gets up and speaks some prophetic word in an unknown tongue, that's not a sign of his maturity any more than it is for a pastor to get up and preach a sermon in a known tongue, but does it with some intention to build up some reputation or fame or name for himself. Spiritual maturity is seen in how willing we are and desirous we are to be a blessing to others. What Paul is saying in verse 19 is that he's after quality rather than quantity. It's better to sing one theologically rich hymn and preach a 20-minute theologically rich sermon and call it a day than it is to spend four hours running around speaking in tongues. Now what's even better is to sing multiple theologically rich hymns and a theologically rich psalm and pray a theologically rich prayers and have a theologically rich sermon, right? And do all of the parts of God's worship. But if you're going to have to choose, always choose 
quality every time over quantity. This is the resolution of Christian worship. It must have understanding. It must be done unto the edification of God's people. And when God's people are edified, they respond the amen. So no, the specific circumstances of the Corinthian church are very different than our church. They're not the same as they are today. Oh, but you better believe that the principles of this text are just as applicable to us. In the worship of God, we need heat and light. We need heat and light. I love what they said about the ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones. They said he was logic on fire. You see, you can have heat without light, can't you? You can have exciting, emotional experiential worship that doesn't actually edify because there's no light to illuminate the truth. And you can have light without heat. You can have a dry intellectual presentation of facts that ignores the emotions of God's people. But if you're going to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to how he has instructed us to worship him in the Bible, we must have both. We must have heat and we must have light in the worship of God. We need worship that strongly appeals to the mind and dramatically affects the emotions. And when we have heat and light, when we have doctrinal depth, when we have passionate proclamation of the truth, then in Jesus' name, say amen. Amen. Let us go to our Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for every jot and tittle of your word. And... We might think that something as simple as saying the amen in worship is a light matter. And many might think it an odd thing to preach on this topic. But Lord, it was important enough for you to include this teaching in your word. And therefore, it is important enough for us to consider as your people. So I pray, Father, that you would teach us and instruct us and lead us that we might learn to worship you better that you might receive more glory from our worship and that we might receive more edification. Grow this church in love, a love that produces knowledge and edification by way of understanding your truth. We love you and we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.